Welcome to the Perky Collar Radio Show, where we talk to entrepreneurs from across the globe to learn why they started their company, what mistakes they've made, what they learned from those mistakes, and they all share an incredible success story. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Perky Collar Radio Show. I'm your host, David M. Frankel. I'm so excited to introduce to you a friend, a customer, a colleague of mine, Mike Shalaba. He's the founder of East End Helicopter. Good morning, uh, Mr. Mike. How are you this morning? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Think? I should almost call you Magic Mike because of the way you got on this interview this morning with all the craziness. So I appreciate you making <laughs> the magic happen and getting on this call. Absolutely no problem. No well, thank problem. you so much. We'll kick off the show with the why. Why did you start East End Helicopter? Oh, that's a, that's a real easy one. In, in 2008, uh, back in New York, uh, I wasn't really making a lot of money and wanted to do something else. And at that time, believe it or not, I was a New York city cop and I was flying for the aviation department and a friend of mine worked with seven of his high school buddies, uh, all together, but he was the only one who really didn't make money. Like they did, like everybody else had like car dealerships going and, you know, things like that. And he, he was still working in Wallbounds supermarket where he started when he was in high school. <laughs> so a bunch of the friends always, always wanted to do something for him, you know? And one day they were laying down at the beach and he says, uh, Hey man, maybe we should get a helicopter. And he's like, Hey, I know a guy, I know a guy who can fly him. So he brought this guy to me and, and we talked about it and I actually said you don't want to do this believe me you know an oil change in a helicopter is like $8,000 like people don't understand the maintenance that's involved and the money that's involved in operating helicopters or any aircraft for that matter and this guy was like no no let's do it let's do it so it started then but having two guys that know absolutely zero about aviation uh, started to show very quickly and when maintenance bills started coming in and things like that started happening, um, I wound up buying out the first guy within that year and getting rid of the second guy that same year, just a little later on. And off I went. And I was able to secure a contract with DHL. I'm not sure if you, everybody knows like FedEx, UPS, and then this DHL. DHL is responsible for... Um, a lot of things in, in this country that people don't know about. DHL does all of the international stock market paper that comes in. Comes into New York overnight in different flights. Like there's a Japan flight, an Ireland flight, UK flight, Germany flight. And on, the, on those flights that come in overnight, they have to be cleared by customs. It's all stock bond certificates, papers. You know, Everybody thinks we're all digital. We're not. Our computers in the financial world do not talk to each other the way that you think they do. So just like for a car, like you want to sell your car to your neighbor, you still have to have that title, right? So without the title, you can't sell it. Well, back on in 2004 or 2003, I think it was, Black Monday came around. And Bank of America, being one of DHL's clients, lost over a half a billion dollars in like 17 minutes because their paperwork was on the back of a the delivery truck trying to get into Manhattan to get that stuff to the stock market. Because even in bad times, you have to have it to sell it. 
and there's always someone to buy it while the market's tanking. There's those junk bond guys and things like that. There's still a value to it. However, it's if it's not there, it can't be sold. So the idea was to air air uh, transport it instead of surface transport it. Uh, and I, I've been with them ever since. So, and that's what we do. Uh, we bring in all that paperwork every morning and take it out at night. So it's very good. Very good business. I bet. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of pressure because you got to show up. No excuses, whether it be uh, the weather or traffic or, you know, someone overslept. It's like there's it's a no excuse business. Like, just get it there. Yeah, I think we've lost about nine. Last, last check was nine flights in like eight years. Um, and that's that's excellent. You know, that's just we fly. I mean, we as long as it's not ice, like falling ice, we can get it there. Uh, visibility is was ways to get around that safely, obviously instrument flying, but, uh, we get the job done and we always have, and it was start, it started out as a two year contract back in 2008. Uh, we're still here. We haven't left and they have never sent the contract out for rebid. So we're doing, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Excellent. Well, congratulations. That's a great, uh, thank you. Thank you. Great business to have and it's reliable and dependable. You can sleep, you can eat, you can yeah. live your life and. Just know that the, the, the money's going to keep coming and the contracts will keep coming. Well, it also allows, absolutely. It allows me to do other things and it keeps my time pretty much free. The, the morning routes take about three hours total time. So we're up way before you, you know, and getting things done. Because remember the bell, everything's got to be there by seven o'clock for them. And if it's not, then we got a problem. Um, so when, when that stuff hits the ground, we're done. We don't do anything until four or five o'clock at night where it comes back out. You know, it has to be brought back to the airports to go on their respective flights back overseas. So we're free during the day. And that allows me to do other things. We do have other businesses. We do. I just started more out here in North Carolina uh, last month. Uh, I have a business in Key West, a commercial fishing operation there. Um we we maximize our time there's no doubt we don't sit and wait we just keep on going that's incredible yeah and i I assume you'd also be free on the weekends because the market's only open monday through friday is that correct also or are you still doing things on the weekend nope we uh we we are free on the weekends and that's when the other side of that business turns you know we do a lot the helicopters are based in new york so a lot of celebrity stuff a lot of movie tv you know um we filmed just about everything you see that's air, you know, from the air in New York, that's us. Um, we do a lot there. NBC, CBS, ABC work, um, lots of shows that we do, soap operas, whatever they ask for, we're out there. We're the only ones that do that stuff because all the other, there's only five helicopter companies in all of New York City. And four out of the five. All they all they do is tours, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. They're operating tours around the Statue of Liberty, up the, the Hudson. We don't do any of that. I don't want to do that. I like packages. They don't talk back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we just keep it very simple, um, and and we get that stuff done. Let the other stuff uh, get done by the other guys. I don't think they have the insurance to do what we do either because they hire pilots that are just kind of getting out. Speaking of pilots, I know you know um, Ara, my friend Ara, who 
flew for Kobe Bryant. Um, I think I showed you a picture of us. His actually one of the last pictures before he died was all of us. We were in California for a 60th birthday party for our friend Lorenzo Lamas. Lorenzo Lamas is famous in his own right. He's an actor. His mom was Arlene Dahl. His dad was Fernando Lamas, the first Latin lover, they said, in Hollywood back in the 50s. But Lorenzo actually flies. He flies helicopters uh, when he's not acting. And we all got together for his 60th birthday to include Ara. And um, Ara was supposed to uh, fly Kobe and the family uh, that following Sunday. And that's the Sunday that he, they all perished, unfortunately. And I can't believe that that happened. I still don't believe it. I was one of the nicest, smartest, and safest guys I knew. And he was with Kobe uh, for over seven years. When Kobe, you know, died, there's part of the family with him. You know, like, like this is a guy who flew and was part of his everyday schedule. Ari used to go for the birthday parties, the Sunday barbecues, I and mean, that's how close they were. But I think uh, the weather got him that day and, and a bad decision uh, to fly or to try and fly and get up over the, the fog in California, and it just didn't work out. So it's very sad to hear all that. Sure. Well, you think someone has that much experience with yeah. no, hey, we shouldn't fly, or hey, Kobe, I, I see you know some of the f- the forecast, the clouds, yeah, uh, don't look favorable to fly. Let's let's hold off for a half hour. Let's hold off for an hour. And Kobe says, "No problem, I trust you." Well, um, I, I, so, is there a, a point where you feel like he just made a bad decision, or he didn't advise Kobe properly, or what do you think pushed them to leave when they left? Any idea? So, so this was this is exactly it was a bad decision, and this is exactly what pilots always face, and it's horrible especially for a guy like him who's been with him that long and is treated like he's part of the family. Kobe always had a rule that him, his wife, and his kids, like the wife and and him would never fly together. That was a rule, just in case something like this happened. They broke that rule this time for the kid end of it because this was for the kids. I I think he didn't want to let them down. She was playing a championship basketball tournament, uh, not even far. Kobe had some commitments in the morning where he had to be in Los Angeles and then he was supposed to get back to the airport and fly over to Orange County and get out of there to make this basketball team, you know, make it happen, make it complete. There was two other girls that needed a ride that were in the same position and their parents were on board as well. And, you know, that's that's something that they broke one of their own rules. And you add that with the weather, I think Ara just was like, you know, I don't want to let him down. Let's do this. I'll give it my best shot, you know, never thinking that the worst can happen. And unfortunately, it did. You know, uh, you can't mess with weather, man. You just can't. It it just doesn't work. And I assume the championship game was at a certain time. So that was probably their time-sensitive aspect was what pushed them to go. Yes, they were running late. And, uh, you know, he was under the, you know, pressure. Felt like pressure. Right. And if it wasn't far, could they have driven and still been on time? Or obviously, is this more about the experience of no, flying in a helicopter? No, it was on the other side of the valley. They would have never made it. it. Flying was fine, you know, time-wise. Car, no good. It was all the way on the other side of the valley. Okay. Three hours to get there uh, outside of the helicopter. So that wasn't an option. The option was to cancel and reschedule the game. You know, that's being that he was the coach. and You know, he could have easily have – 
tried to do that and say half the team is with me and we're weathered out on an aircraft. Reschedule it. That was sad. I believe it was Saturday. So they could have tried and done it on Sunday. They were already in hotels, the other team. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't like they couldn't do that. Right. But, um, you know, things happen. Who knows? You just, you're not there, but you kind of get the sense of what happened because you know the people. And right. I know you would have never tried to let them down. You know, it's just horrible. Right, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, Ara and Kobe are all part of the helicopter family, and it's, uh, it's a big loss yeah. for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, it sent... It sent stinging waves throughout uh, the aviation world, especially the helicopter world, because they were always they were open. If you flew on the West Coast, you you know these people, they were around. You know, Kobe never hid from anybody. He shook everybody's hand, took a picture. You know, whatever. Although even the ramp workers by the aircraft, they all knew him. He treated them great. You know, it's a big loss, very big loss. So. So how did that crash change aviation rules, regulations, insurance? Did you see any trickle-down effects from that crash happening? Well, one, obviously, we're, we're, we're still paying for it. The, the rates went up incredibly um, after that. The, the FAA really didn't do much because those rules were already in play. It's just that some of the rules were ignored. Um at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you work for in aviation, even if you're an American Airlines pilot, the blame goes to the pilot on anything. Ultimately, you're the guy in control. It doesn't matter what the book says. It doesn't matter what, uh, you know, the news is going to say. The responsibility will always fall back on the captain. Uh, if he feels something, he's got a little tingling in his ear that something's not right, and he does something and it causes that aircraft to go down, they go after him. Um, the rules have always been there. Uh, it's up to you to decide if, if that rule needs to be enforced or not. When he, uh, when he died, there were some thoughts to change some things, but nothing ever came of it. Uh, they were kind of already there, you know, it's a pilot's decision to either, we call it go or no go. And he was on a no go situation and, and chose to go. So. That's bad. You know, they yeah. hit the ground at 246 knots. I mean, if you know how fast that is, it's uh, the the black box showed uh, some serious impact. Never, they ne I don't think they ever knew if they were going up, down, sideways. They had no idea. And they just impacted the ground that fast. So I'm pretty sure it was over fast. Right. That's terrible. Um, horrible. You mentioned. Yeah. You said some some rules were ignored. Are there some rules you think that you know of that he for sure ignored, which is a cause the fatal crash, or even idea of certain rules, or what? What do you think he well, ignored? It's that, always it's always when I say rules ignored, is it's rules that that again are well they leave it very gray. You know, this is what it is. Up for interpretation. Yep. Like so, like it's usually like three miles visibility, three hundred feet, something like that would be a you know, a guide and, you know, a hundred yards outside of the airport, it could be, you know, 1500 feet and two miles visibility, but you got to get there. You know what I mean? You got to go through the rule of 303, which is sitting on top of your airport to get to that, you know, clear spot. You know, we call them, we call them sucker holes. Um, so sometimes guys will bend the rules a little bit, say, Oh, 
yeah, I can see it. It's over there. It's right there. Oh, it's, you know, something that we call VFR. Um, if you can see it, you can go. And then all of a sudden, when you get up about 200 feet, everything goes white around you. You're in it. You know, now you're in it. Now what? Mm-hmm. Now you got, you know, choices to make. So you shouldn't have gone to begin with. And that's what that experience obviously comes to. You, you can pull it off because you have experience, but a newer pilot would never pull things off like that. Yeah. Or even an experienced pilot drives himself worse, you know, into a worse situation. You never want to do that. You know, you just don't. Uh, you got to weigh out, you know, what's your, the, your risk factor? You know, what are you doing? What's it for? Uh, does the, the benefit outweigh the, you know, the negative? It, it just, you, there's so much to think about. In that case, this this was his friend, and his family was on board, and, and the neighbors, kids, and, you know, he didn't want to let him down. That's what it comes down to. Right. He did not let him down. I, wow. That's what well, it's, well, it's a decision, and ultimately, I'm sure he had to make quick decisions as well. It wasn't like he had time to ponder it or think about it or ask for a second right. opinion. He was in the moment and had to make a split yep. decision based on what he saw and unfortunately just didn't make the right decision at that time, and I'm sure it just kind of compounded from there. Absolutely. I got a, I got the call. Lorenzo called me. Now, it's a three-hour time difference. And we we had woke up to the news that that happened. And Lorenzo comes right out of that heliport. The same uh, company is where they're at, you know. And he called me and told me. He said it's it was so bad this morning. He's like, I would have never gone. I can't believe he left. You know, they actually watched them walk out of the, you know, the um, – the building and into the aircraft and take, take off. And he, he was just like really concerned because it was thick. The fog was very thick that morning. And he called back again to tell us that it, it didn't happen. You know, he went down horrible feeling. I'm sure. Yeah. Considering two weeks ago, we were all, you know, having birthday cake and drinking coffee at the same table. Right. Things can happen quickly. As I say, tomorrow's not guaranteed. So live your best life today. Sure. Um, and it's, uh, it hit homes to a lot of people. And I'm sure a lot of professional athletes and a lot of people in the space, it hit home very quickly. And you saw how the community came together in Kobe's honor uh, because oh, yeah. it, was, it came out of nowhere and no one expected it. No one saw it coming. Yep. Obviously, not just his death, but all the people along with him that, that passed yep. and the losses of those young, shining talents, you know, his daughter's potential and college and you know WNBA and you know all these different things that could have happened since she had so much talent yep. um, that all kind of went by the wayside unfortunately on that terrible morning and that was Kobe's uh, from what I understand that was Kobe's end game too him kind of getting out of the NBA circuit and driving all of his attention to this new and because of his daughter obviously who was super talented to get more involved in women's basketball and he was diverting a lot of his um, wealth and friends and investors towards that game and hoping that it would be something that he could, you know, do for the rest of his life. Yeah. Imagine him coaching a WNBA team and his daughter playing that team. Imagine the yep. kind of popularity WNBA, what kind of yep. know, TV endorsements they would get, the kind of TV yep. time and exposure they would get when Kobe's on the sidelines. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. You know, he was not, uh, he was not a dumb guy, that's for sure. Hundred yeah. percent. Well, Mike, walk me through. I appreciate you sharing that story, and obviously, it's it's near and dear to your heart. So I appreciate you opening up to us and sharing 
the behind the scenes story that no one's ever heard before. So I appreciate your openness yeah. to that. Sure. Uh, back to the company East End Helicopter, as you've grown it, obviously you bought out the partners, as you explained earlier, did you make any mistakes while scaling or growing or finding more customers? Obviously, DHL is your, your main customer, but did you find that you tried a new service and it didn't work out? Or did you make any mistakes while working with DHL that you learned from that you can share with our audience? Sure. Building this business was not easy. <clears throat> I'll tell you, my background was completely the opposite. I'm more of a hands-on guy with uh, certain things. I am not a book and paper guy. I never have been. My my life is very simple. At the age of 17, I had my parents, I begged them to sign me into uh, the United States Army. You know, you're supposed to be 18. I wanted to go early and without parent consent, they won't take you. So I begged my parents to do that. When I went into the Army, that's, you know, there was things that I wanted to do. I remember when I was like seven, eight years old, I used to ride my bicycle to the, uh, the heliport and stand at the fence and just watch these helicopters, you know, take off and land all day long. I used to get in trouble all the time because I'd never make it home for dinner. But that's something that was instilled in me so young and I wanted to do that. And I used to stand at that fence and say, I'm going to do that one day. And by my parents helping me to, to do, you know, to get myself in there, that's what I did. So I spent many years in the army. And when I came out, I became a police officer and I was on the street for a long time until they finally called and said, okay, we have a spot for, you know, you to be in the aviation unit. So most of the paperwork stuff, I was never really good at any of that because I never had to do it. So bringing East End Helicopter to life, I've learned a lot of things. Dealing with the FAA, number one, and government paperwork is quite the task in itself, which leaves very little time to fly. It's a full-time job with keeping the FAA fed, um, you know, with paper. Uh, there's also record keeping. You know, you're not allowed to keep any records uh, on computer at that time. They want hard copy file cabinets that are fireproofed and sealed. And that's because if you take off and don't come back, there has to be a log of every single nut and bolt on that aircraft. They want to know everything so that when the inspectors go out and they find wreckage, that they can match up pieces to, you know, what's in the logbook. You know, every single item on that aircraft has a, has a number on it. And that's how they piece these accidents back together to see what failed or what, what happened. So, again, that in itself, huge task, not for me. I'm the guy, I just want to go fly him. I don't want to do any of that. And when we started this, I had to do it all. And we ran into, <clears throat> God, oh my God, uh, two years worth of uh, a crash course from the FA and learning how to get it to them the way that they like it. And to their credit, they helped a lot. They knew that I didn't uh, know anything basically. And they walked, they walked me through it. So also logistics and parts and things like that. Um, everything in an aircraft has a time limit, no matter if it's good or not, when you're flying people for money or uh, operating under what we call part 135. Uh, it doesn't matter if I go out and buy a brand new set of rotor blades at 3,000 hours, you got to throw them out. There's, even if there's nothing wrong with them, it doesn't matter. Um, engines, same way. Most of the guys that do the race boats, you ever see those big like Miss Geico race boats and stuff? Those are, those are our old helicopter engines in those boats because it's, it's, worth, it's worth something to them. When we're done with it, we're just not allowed to use it because of its time limit. So 
in the beginning I was buying, you know, straight from factory, like Bell Helicopter, uh, straight from these uh, retail parts people. And then you learn how to, you know, save money, get smart, start buying wholesale, start having rebuilds done. You know, even when you don't need something, you have a guy rebuilding equipment so that when the other one does come up or blows up, you got a spare. You learn. You learn as you go. So the first couple of years, definitely not profitable to like how we are now and there's always uh you know a learning curve that you're in uh, until you finally get it you know uh, and you and you apply that i think with other businesses as well i have another company in here in north carolina that's equipment you know we do um big construction equipment bulldozers bobcats uh excavators stuff like that even though there's no time limit on parts, you're still blowing those parts up and dealing with how to get them and how much you should be paying for them. You know, I'm not going to, to Caterpillar directly for a part. I'm going to a guy that wholesales through them for the part and I'm saving half the money. And you learn that through having the other business. You already navigated that. So there's there's a lot. Um, I just had, again, another part of the business we have our commercial fishing operation that we have in Key West, big boats, big breakdowns, big motors. I just had two parts flown in from Canada. Um, boat boat went down on Sunday. I had it back up and running on Wednesday. When I called the manufacturer for the part, uh, in this case, it was Bosch. They were telling me six to eight months. Well, I well, found two of them in Canada. I bought both of them and had them shipped to the boat. And we were back up and running in, in, by Wednesday. So... You you learn how to you know get those logistics under under control early on. And what a huge difference! Yeah, big difference in money, time, and listen. If the like my mechanics know that if if the aircraft's not flying, you know, then nobody's making money. You got to get it back in the air, or you got to get the boat back in the water. You know, if it's not moving, it's not making money. Therefore, nobody's making money. So. <laughs> Yeah, it, we have a good system that works, and they all know that uh, without these things moving and working, nobody's going to make any money. So, I think a lot of salespeople can relate to, I hate paperwork. I think every salesperson hates paperwork in general. <laughs> Was there ever a point with the FAA, you just want to bring someone in to handle all the FAA paperwork and all the stuff that needs yep. to be done, yep. and you just focus Absolutely. on flying, or they require you because you're the main pilot and you're the owner of the company, they require you to be involved in the process? No, so the the structure for for uh, any Part One Thirty Five um, company, you have uh, owner operator, you have the your chief pilot, chief of operations, and your chief of maintenance, and everybody has a responsibility. Um, it's really not on the pilot, uh, you know, unless it, you want it to be, but. The chief of operations has to answer, answer mostly to the FAA. That's who deals with them. Uh, the, yeah, the chief of maintenance will feed the the operations guy all all the stuff he needs to deal with them. They're lenient to the point, you know, time wise stuff, but they're they're not flexible with the rules. They're just not. And, and listen, I can see why because if you have a crash and it was due to, you know, a mechanical item failing you know, that's, that's on you and that's an unnecessary death. So they, they're not flexible when it comes to that kind of stuff, but they are flexible with the timeline of getting some of the paperwork in. They understand it's a, 
it's a, it's an overtasking of paperwork that they still uh, require, and they don't do computers. The FAA does not. It's not like, hey, let me just scan this and send it over. They, oh no, they don't want to do that. And everything that you have, your each aircraft has its own metal lockable fireproof container uh, or file cabinet uh, with every single manual and every single logbook that. Uh, you know, since it was built. So let's say if I go out tomorrow and I buy like a 1985, you know, military type aircraft or something that's retired and put it into service, I get with that every piece of machine, uh, every every piece of paperwork that came with it from like, you know, wherever it was. It could have been the Vietnam War. I'll have all that paperwork. Wow. Yeah. That's like most of our glove boxes. <laughs> it's, I have a warehouse. All the, all, all the registrations from the last 20 years in that 20-year-old car. It's all, in our, it's all in our glove box, all the oil changes. It's probably like something it similar. Is. <laughs> There's crates and crates and crates of paperwork. And just like you said, oil change done on you know September 8th, 1971, and lists all the, the items and what the mechanic did. I have it all. Brakes replaced, everything. Yeah. I'm sure every repair, it's it's in there. Everything's got to be documented. And every logged. single thing, everything, everything's in there. Along with all been. routine stuff too, not just things that were fixed or repaired or replaced, but also routine stuff that's done, that's so you know right. everything's been done properly. Yep. We and do it sounds daily. like it requires a team. It's not just you doing everything. There's a team of people that are responsible for different things for the FAA, but you're the one ultimately held accountable. Yep, absolutely. And we'll do that when we every day that it flies. You do. We do our pre. Uh, flight in the more uh, in the in the nighttime, when it's done for the day, the mechanics attack the machine to make sure it's ready for, you know, the morning. So the pilot, the mechanics will go over, and the mechanics will ask the pilot, "Hey, did you feel anything? Is there anything we should know about?" Because my mechanics work overnight; they don't work during the day. Um, and there's a reason because if you find anything, you know, you fix it while everybody's sleeping, so it's ready to go in the morning when it's needed. Uh, so they'll have a quick discuss, discussion when, you know, the bird comes in and if there's nothing, they'll still go over the aircraft to make sure everything is fine. And then in the morning, you know, after the post flight is done at night, the pre-flight becomes the, the major part of the pilot's responsibility in the morning, even though he just got signed off and it's got a green light from the mechanics. That doesn't mean that the, the birds in the, in the warehouse or the hangar or the mice didn't make a home in one of the, you know, the, uh, the wiring uh, facilities on the aircraft and chew through it or something. So it gets a pre-flight in the morning and looked over again and the pilot will get in and fire it up and hopefully everything's always okay. Right. Well, it's good they have that check process. It's good mm -hmm. they work overnight to fix problems yep. and that way everything can stay on schedule. Yeah. Yeah. And they enjoy it because we only fly. So the DHL stuff only flies on, um, Tuesday and Tuesday through Friday. So if you think about it, the guys make good money because they're off, you know, from Friday morning at 10 o'clock, let's say to all the way to Monday night they're, they're That's their weekend. You know, it's, it's a, it's a good life for them. So there's no bitterness, you know, running a business, you always got to keep them happy. They're an extension of you. Your employees have to be happy. If they're not happy, that means that you're, you're not doing your job as an owner and, you're probably leaving money on the table because they're not doing their job up to, you know, the level that it should be. You know, my, my thing, I have two rules. If you have someone <clears throat> as a partner who thinks alike, then there's no reason for the other one. 
I like to have a guy, if I had a partner, to think a little outside the box or teach me how to think the way he thinks because then you look at it from two different perspectives, not the same one where you're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Hey, did you want to know paint this thing red? Oh, yeah, that would look great red. I want a guy that says, no, I think we should paint it blue. You know, like looking at things different ways kind of helps. And and I've, I've always held that dear. Um, the other thing is when you're doing this, if someone that works for you gets out of bed in the morning and looks at their wife and their kids and says, ah, oh, man, I don't want to go to work. It sucks. I can't wait for Friday. Well, then you're not doing your job as an owner either. I got guys that come in early. I got guys that come in on Saturdays on the day off. They hang out in the hangar at the aircraft with their kids. They clean stuff. I don't ask them to be there. They do it because they want to be there. And just to let you know, I have the same employees now since 2008 in all my businesses, not just one. From the day I started them to now, no one's ever been fired and no one's ever quit. Wow. Yep. Everybody's, in fact, I'm the one. I go, I live in North Carolina, but you know, the helicopters are in New York. Uh, the land demo company is here in North Carolina. The commercial fishing is in Key West. I picked where I am to be in the middle so I can travel easily to all of them, you know, without killing myself. God, when I show up, they're like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. We don't need you. <laughs> that's the that's where I'm at. That's a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you for a success story, but I think having the same employees since 2008 is quite a success story. So give us the uh, give us the secret sauce. Obviously, you say you treat your people well. They have to love their job. And you don't have to use that as your success story. I'm just uh, joking with you, but that's a hell of a success story. Anyone listening that owns a business and said they haven't hired in 14 years, it's got to be very few and far between, less than 1%. Yep. So yep. share with us your success story. Like Obviously, laying in DHL has got to be a success story because that's your – that's yeah. your bread and butter now. Yeah. But, you know, feel free to share with us a success story for hiring or training or the culture. Give us something that uh, all of us can learn it, from. Go ahead. I think it's just common sense. The success for me has always been, in, especially around the holidays or birthdays or whatever. Like I, my chief pilot in New York, I had to force him. He, didn't, he hasn't taken a vacation in years. I sent him on. I forced him. I told him. I told him I was going to fire him if he didn't go. And I knew what he liked. <laughs> he liked. Um, there was a show on TV uh, that Tim Allen used to. I, I think I don't know the name of it, but Tim Allen. Home Improvement. Uh, Home Improvement. Like he's a little older. I think it might have been the the, after, the, the show after that. It doesn't matter though. Oh, okay. He, he loves. Tim Allen. Yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> his wife is the kind of like they're the same. Like they don't do much. They just kind of like love their kids and you know, hang out at home. I forced him to go that Tim Allen was performing at the Foxwoods theater in um, Foxwoods casino in Connecticut. I literally bought them tickets, had the helicopter, another guy take them in the helicopter, got a limo from the airport to the show. Like I had to force him to do that. And he couldn't thank me enough. And um, they like, I got to keep him happy somehow. And, and those guys are just workaholics, but the, the, the the ingredients to, to doing better business is to have happy employees. And I have a friend right now who owns a very large dog training facility out in Mooresville there. And he's there 42 years. He trains bomb dogs for the government, uh, prison dogs for, for the government. He's got dogs in um, big buildings in the mail rooms sniffing, you know, the, the, the stuff that comes in. Big operation. 
he can't keep an employee more than two weeks. It's driving him crazy. And I said to him, I, I, I said, why? You know what? And I've seen the way he talks to him. Sometimes it's a little rough. And he's a little rough. He's a little rough around the edges. He means well. He's got a great heart. He just doesn't know how to speak. And that, I think speaking to your employees and generally caring to let them know that you are listening to them and listening to the complaints. You know, if you got a guy that comes in and says, hey, man, you know, we broke that tool three weeks ago. You haven't bought another one yet. Or whatever. you got to pay attention to that stuff because it eats at them. It stops them from performing their job. You have to give your employees the tools to, to be successful because they make you successful. And that's, a, and, and that's like my number one thing. I always ask every single day, what do we need? Does anybody need anything? Uh, how can we make it better? Uh, you just got to treat them like family. They're not, you know, they're not slaves. They're humans that are there to make your business better. You know, um, I, I, I try and practice that with all of them. I really do. Well, that's awesome. And I think a lot of us can learn from that. And obviously we hold our employees highly accountable for our results and hitting goals and quotas and so on and so forth. And sometimes we lose sight of they are people and the happier they are, the better the quality of the work is going to be. And yeah, uh, also the, the bigger and better the company can be when you have a bunch of happy people around you. And also nowadays with so many differences and working from home and all these other options, people are looking to jump ship if they're not yeah. happy. And you're going to lose them a lot quicker. And think about the time it takes to train them and get them up to speed to replace yep. them when you lose them. It's just easier to take care of them. It's kind of like a marriage. It's just easier it to is. keep them happy than it is to replace them. And it's, uh, so it's easier to keep them if you, if you just keep them happy. You know, you can't buy loyalty. You can't train loyalty. Loyalty comes from people being treated well and being happy. And when that happens, the, you, that's it. The, the mixing bowl is the way it's supposed to be with the ingredients. It's ready to get put in the oven. You know, uh, Keep them happy and they'll be loyal. Loyalty is the number one thing that you want from your employees. You know, They, they want to wear your company shirt while they're working and go you know, at lunchtime, go out to the deli and get you know, their lunch. They want to be able to stand there. You want them to be able to stand there in that shirt and and not, you know, curse your company while they're waiting online with other guys, you know, that, that are at different jobs. Like, oh, I hate this company. I can't wait to get out. No, my guy's different. Yeah, man, I love this place. I'm never leaving. I can't wait, you know, to retire the right way. Um, taking care of them in that sense, too. Make sure they got their 401s straightened out, their retirements in order. Make sure that they have tips from, uh, our, you know, we have an accounting firm. They come in and, uh, you know, they always ask things or, um, you know, tell you what's coming up for the new year, how they can help. Uh, it's important that they know that you care about them. Uh, and we, and we do because let's face it, man, they are you, you can't be everywhere all the time. It's them that are on the front lines, meeting your customers, especially in aviation. I'm not flying with them. They're going to meet my, the people that are in charge of, what we do so they're the first frontline you know face that they they people see 100 yeah. well mike it's been a pleasure having you on the show uh, you're a breath of fresh air I, i'm so excited for your success the family you've created with your company companies i should say <laughs> you got lots going on uh share with the audience uh websites for easton helicopter feel free to share it for the uh the commercial uh let's see i took my notes of the the, the fishing 
uh, operation down in Florida yeah. and the manufacturing company here in North Carolina. I think I got good notes. I got three companies in, in the top of my yeah. head here. So it's feel free to share as many websites as you want, phone numbers, social media handles, wherever you want to share. So people that are listening can then reach out to you for potential business opportunities. Sure. EastEndHelicopter.com is the helicopters. Um, my Ohana Fishing in uh, Florida and Piedmont uh, Triad Land Clearing. That's here in North Carolina. It's real simple. Um, you can find us anywhere. Excellent. Any social media at all for any of the companies or just the website? Same, no, same thing. Actually, they're all intertwined. You know, Facebook, okay. the Myohana Charters and Fishing down in Florida. Here, it's um, the East End Helicopter. Again, same thing for uh, Facebook. And Piedmont Triad Land Clearing and Management is on social media as well. Perfect. Mike, thank you so much. I know you've had a long night, had an overnight flight, and yeah. still was able to get on this recording, and you went through a lot to be here. So I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. And sharing all the, all the wisdom you've shared today. I, it's just awesome. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of the show. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward oh, my to more. Pro- I'm sorry, say it one more time. Look forward. I look forward to hearing more from you guys. Yes, sir. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Perky Collar Radio Show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. What is the Perky Collar? It is a collar support system for dress shirts. That's right, over 18,000 of these amazing devices have been sold globally. How does it work? Lift the collar, add the Perky Collar with the long tapered ends on top, lower your collar on top, adjust to make sure it's even around the collar, and that's it. You've now transformed your droopy, saggy dress shirt collar to a brand new looking dress shirt ready to tackle sweaters, jackets, blazers, and the collar still stays nice and tall. How do you find it? The website is perkyllc.com. That's spelled P as in Paul, E as in Elephant, R as in Robert, K as in Kangaroo, Y as in Yo-Yo, LLC, LarryLarryCharlie.com. That's perkyllc.com. Get yours today, or if you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting or live here, feel free to come by South Park Mall's kiosk located between Francesca's and Toomey. Best entrance is Maggiano's and Cheesecake Factory. See you soon. Look your best. Have a great day. Perky LLC is a clothing innovation company. We solve clothing related problems such as a droopy, saggy dress shirt collar, the pocket square that doesn't seem to sit still pop- properly, it unfolds, it falls down. The shirt that keeps coming untucked, collar stays that keep curling on you, and more and more issues with your belt, cracking, splitting, holeless belts are the solution. You can adjust them by a quarter inch instead of having to go up an inch or down an inch. What about that lapel you want to use as an accent color to match a dress or as a color accent to your wardrobe? This and many other fun fashion accessories are available at perkyllc.com. Beyond innovation, we also have fashion accessories. Bow ties, you name it, from feather to blingy to wooden, even wooden ones that move, even wooden ones that showcase the skyline of cities all across the country. Check out perkyllc.com for all these great fashion accessories and innovative solutions. Are you ready to publish your own book? Do you have a story to tell? Does the world need to hear your story? Now is your chance. Go to https colon 
forward slash go go dot bestsellingbook.com forward slash perky collar radio show. That's right. It's as simple as that. They'll walk you through every step needed to publish your own book. And watch out. Be ready to be an Amazon bestseller, maybe a Wall Street Journal bestseller, or maybe even New York Times bestseller. It all starts with a single step and having the right team around you. Again, go to https colon forward slash go go dot bestsellingbook.com forward slash perky collar radio show. Look forward to seeing your amazing results.